0: Well, good morning, and welcome to Scotts Hill. My name's Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it was a great time last week, wasn't it? Celebrating all that God has done, amen. We'll give the Lord a round of applause on that. We've got to celebrate all that God's done. We've got to celebrate and look back on everything that he has accomplished uh, in the lives of people and in the lives of a community and the lives of people that have been ministering all around the world. Uh, and even before that time, even before last week's celebration, I started thinking about, you know, what do celebrations do? Uh, what, what are they? What, what, why do we enjoy them? And, and what are some of the pitfalls that come along with celebrations? And, and for some of you guys, I'm sure that you probably recognize that celebrations can be a great time of, of remembering what God has done, but also they can end up leaving us kind of uh, kind of flat and comatose, can't they? I uh, Think of it in terms of this like Christmas, right? Christmas, there's a big buildup to it. Uh, really, maybe the day after Christmas is a better way to think about it. That's whenever all the presents have been opened. All the fun has been had. That's the day where after we're like, man, what do we do now? We just sit around and, and, and play with the toys, but then they get tired of the toys. Celebrations can do that for us, can't they? They can leave us in a in a kind of a, a down mood, even though God has intended for them to compel us and propel us into the future. Memorials are a great opportunity for us to look back, but also uh, as long as they're being used as a reason for us to continue Going. We have memorials in our, in our nation, things that remind us of, of things that are important to the life of our nation and that are more, more than just the stones that they're built with. You think of the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty is, means more than just the stones that it is comprised of. It helps us to remember uh, freedom from, uh, from Britain in the Revolution. Or we think about memorials like the 9-11 memorial. Uh, there's more that this memorial commemorates than just looking at the stones and the water and the things around us. It, it reminds us and commemorates those nearly 3,000 people uh, who were killed in, uh, in an act of terror. And then our desire as a nation uh, to be about freedom and helping people enjoy freedom. In our own lives, we have memorials, times that we think about and look back on, uh, February 26, 2005, for most of you in this room, it's like, well, that's just another day. Uh, but for my family, that's the day in which two young people uh, stood in front of this, uh, at, the, at the foot of this uh, platform and said their I do's and their I will's. And committed to live their life together uh, for, in faithfulness and for the glory of Christ in, in marriage. And so this year we'll be celebrating our 15th anniversary, if you guys are trying to do the math in your head. And uh, it's going to be a great celebration uh, for us. It has nothing to do with us. That's about God's grace, you know. Whew. Amen. <laughs> if Ashley can put up with me for 15 years, there's hope for you in your marriage. Um, memorials provide a point of reference, don't they? They provide... Uh, a reminder between two sets of events or two realities of significant transformation in the life of a person or in the life of a group of people. And what we do at those times of memorial, how we use those, will we'll showcase, will uh, show, show the outcome of its purpose in our lives. We live where we live in the past, Will the memorial, Uh, be the high point of everything that we wanted to accomplish? Or will the memorial become the kind of catalyst that brings to fruition the reality that it intended to uh, inspire at its inception? Today is kind of like that for us as a body. We have experienced and celebrated the goodness of God, and yet there's a massive mission ahead of us, uh, an important global mission that is before us. Will we, as a people, we retreat into the annals of history. We look back at the good old days of ministry, we will remember all that God has done, and that be the end point, or will we build on what we have seen for years to come? Interestingly enough, God's word gives us some direction on this and, and how memorials can become a motivation for the mission that God has for us. So this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter four. Joshua chapter four. Uh, And and in this text, Joshua chapter 4, we're going to find a moment between two realities and memorials that motivate the mission. A moment between two realities and a memorial that motivates the mission. Now, as we pick up on the story, we must understand the significance of the beginning of Joshua chapter 4. There's a new leader in the people of Israel, Joshua. He's been commissioned and charged by Moses, who 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 has died. Uh, to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the land that they were at the precipice of going into 40 years before, but they chose to disobey God's word. God said, go into the land and take the land. I'll give it to you. I've given it over to you. You just have to go through and take the land. And the people didn't trust him. They didn't believe that God was good and that God was wise and that God was able to do what he had promised. And so they, they, they retreated in fear. And, and because of this, God and his grace, he didn't just say, oh, I'm done with Israel. I'm done with them. No, he disciplined them as a good parent disciplines their children. And he helped them to see that he was good by sustaining them in the wilderness. Though he sent them through the wilderness, he sustained them. He prepared them. He cared for them. Interestingly enough, this event here that we're about to read about happens 40 years to the day after God instituted the Passover in Egypt, right before they were about to be uh, involved in the Exodus, where they all came out in that great saving work that God accomplished. Our text reminds us that the people are between two realities, clearly between two realities. They're leaving the wilderness. They're leaving the remembrances of the discouragement and the, the disobedience, the slavery and the affliction. And they're going to the reality of the promised land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, How many of you guys have ever had a milk and honey uh, meal? Yeah, I don't know. I've never had one before, but apparently it was so good that God opened up the land for them to go to and enjoy it. The land that was promised to the forefathers, but between the two stand an insurmountable obstacle. There's this river. It's called the Jordan River. Now, if you look at it today, you might say, that's pretty unimpressive. I could probably swim that thing. No problem. But the text reminds us that it is the time of year when the Jordan is overflowing its banks. If you ever seen a picture of that, uh, it is, a, it is a, a span that you cannot cross naturally. You can't get across the Jordan whenever it is in its flood stage. It's too high. It's too dangerous. It's, nearly impo- it's impossible to cross if you don't have some kind of a boat, and they didn't. They were going to walk across on dry land. And not only that, let's say they made it across. Let's say they made it across the Jordan. Well, in front of them stands a multitude of people who already live there, who have already built cities, Who have armies who are ready uh, to protect their investment so they have these huge problems between them now just for a point of clarification just so you're not saying oh i hear what you're saying jeff i'm not saying that our last 40 years were like the wilderness wanderings and that our next 40 years are going to be like the promised land that's not what i'm saying what i am saying is that we are between two realities we are, are reminded of the history of transformation and growth that God has accomplished. The changes that we've seen, the blessings that have come, and on the horizon is what appears to be an unending mission. A mission that is that is overwhelming, to say the least. So as we've gathered here, as the Israelites gathered there, how can the memorial of where we have come, by God's grace, motivate us to stay engaged in the ongoing mission of God. So this morning I want to share with you four key truths that show how memorials motivate our mission. How memorials motivate our mission. The first kind of broad overarching truth that I want you to see today is that memorials commemorate the foundation of the mission. Memorials commemorate the foundation of the mission. For every mission There has to be a starting point. There has to be a central theme, an overarching truth, an overwhelming reality that would move us to do anything. Kind of in short, there's gotta be a reason why we're doing it. There's gotta be a reason why we are going to engage in the mission. Now, some of the reasons that we have for doing things are pretty inconsequential. So here's one, why do I like Coke and not Pepsi? The reason for that, I don't know. Uh, Pretty inconsequential though. Another one would be, why am I a Carolina fan and not a Duke fan? Well, there's probably some uh, godliness connected to that, I'm sure. Um, but in reality, it's inconsequential, right? There are some that are more consequential. Like, why do I go 55 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone? Now, here's some snickers out there. Then there's others that are, have serious consequences. Why did I choose to lie to my spouse rather than be truthful with them? Or, on a positive note, something that we would long to see, why did I choose to share the gospel with that person rather than staying quiet and and keeping my mouth shut? The same is true in the life of Israel. They have an enormous mission. And for them, there has to be a reason, a compelling reason, that overshadows or outweighs the magnitude of the mission that they have been called to. So before we see what that underlying truth is, let's see what the mission itself is. What is the mission that God has for them? Well, simply put, it is to move 10 tribes of people out of the land that they had been promised. And by the way, these 10 tribes, it wasn't like a a small tribe here, a little nomadic tribe. No, Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells us that these tribes were more numerous and more powerful than the nation of Israel. So some of them were bigger than Israel were by themselves, and there's 10 of them that they have to move out. So it's a huge problem. We see in Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, uh, the, the mention of these 10 tribes, or these tribes. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So is it God who's doing the work? Yes, we see that clearly. He says he's going to be with them. Is it the people that are doing the work? Again, the answer is yes. We'll see in Joshua chapter four that there are 40,000 men who are prepared for battle that will go over before the people of Israel. The implication is that God is expecting that they are going to be part of the mission of moving out the people. Now, as we open in chapter four, this miraculous work, God's work of parting the Jordan and the people passing through has been accomplished. They are going through. They've seen God's mighty work as a signal to them that this is really going to happen. This is really all the things that we've hoped for, all the things that our parents were hoping for, all the things that we long to see are about to come to fruition. You see, that passage before us reminds us that the Lord of all the earth is with them. So let's pick up in Joshua chapter 4, verses one uh, through seven, and then we'll pick up again and read 19 through 21. So, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each man a tribe, And command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then in verse number 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Twelve stones. Rather than a memorable battle cry, they built a pile of rocks. Not just a pile of rocks, a conversation starter, something like you might have on your dining room or your living room table to get the conversation going about what is it that God has done. And this sign is meant to preach a message that that doesn't only reflect and talk about the rocks, but it pulls back the curtains of what is seen to expose the truths that are not. I love what he says uh, to this generation, so that when your children ask you in times to come, what do the stones mean? Dad, what is, why do we have that pile of rocks over there? They could tell them about the wonderful works of God. Just a, a quick application and encouraging point for us as parents that God desires for us to use times in our lives to show our children God's work in us and in in his work in them and what he desires to do for them. Now, his parting the Jordan was a message to teach generations of people that it was God who went before them. It was God who made the way. It was God who was going to be with them. It was God who was going to accomplish his purposes in and through them. But friends, that's not all the rocks were meant to teach. That wasn't the end goal of the message. The rocks are a sign of a greater reality that exists for the people. It isn't only that God was going to be with them, though he was. The ultimate reality isn't just that they're going to be in the land, though they would. He didn't move them into the land so that they could eat honey and have fruit and enjoy their best life now. He moved them in for a missional purpose. He had a desired intention for their being there to communicate to themselves and to a watching world. And we see this, this foundation of the mission, in verses 23 and 24, I'm going to direct your attention to it one more time. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So what is the foundation that this memorial is supposed to communicate? What is what is the reason why the mission exists in the first place? That is, they are in the land, that as the people are there, as they are seen by the other nations, that they themselves would fear the Lord and that the nations would see the might of the Lord. Or to put it another way, the reason why the mission exists, the foundation upon which it stands, the reason that God is communicating through them and the message that he wants to communicate through them is very simple. That this whole thing from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity is this, it's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about his fame, it's all about his glory, it's all about him. The foundation, the why, is that the hearts of the nation would treasure God above everything else in the universe. And that the nations themselves would see his greatness and come to find their satisfaction in him as well. That's why God moved them into the promised land. Now you might say, that's a cool story about Israel. It's a cool story about rocks. It's a cool story about a river. But I ain't got any of that stuff. What does it mean for us today? The same underlying great and glorious why that existed for the nation of Israel is the same for us today. This is the reason why the church exists. This is the reason why this church exists. Paul helps us to see it clearly in Ephesians chapter one. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why did he do all this stuff? To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things together for the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God saves us to magnify his grace. God brought the people of Israel into the nation to magnify his name. And it's really only from that position that we can even join God in his work of transforming lives. You see, we're not seeking to transform people from mean people to nice people, from poor people to wealthy people, from sad people to happy people. We long to transcend people transformed into people who can see not just physically see but people who can see the glory of God people who can see that it is only in God where their satisfaction can be found only in a right relationship with God can their souls be free from the burdensome worship of false gods that is what we are joining God in his work of transforming people into people that see and love and treasure him above all else we know this is the continued mission because Jesus gives us these directions in, as he is leaving. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the only difference between their mission and ours is that we aren't called to go and move people out of a land. God calls us in this mission to bring people to the very throne of the Lord of all the earth, to bring him into, bring them into his very presence to worship and adore him above all else. Now for us, I think the question that can help us discern whether we are starting from this foundation, whether we might be the people like there were in Israel that feared the Lord is this, do you add Jesus onto your life or is Jesus your life? Do you add Jesus onto your life as a nice addition that that makes people think, oh, that's a nice person. They're probably pretty helpful. They're probably gonna help me do things if I need it. They're not gonna say bad words. Um, you know, whatever the case might be. Or is Jesus the one that defines and directs your life? Is your life directed by him? Now, I'm not just talking about your Christian bumper sticker, your Christian t-shirt, or your what would Jesus do bracelets. I'm talking about that one overriding, overwhelming reality that directs all of your life, all of your decisions, all of your desires, all of your aims in life. Are they founded in wanting to see God's name made great in this world? You see, I think we can say it this way. There has to be one thing that is worth everything that we will do anything to gain. There has to be one thing that is worth everything that we will do anything to gain. The question for us is, is the glory of God and the fame of Christ that one thing for you? Is God's glory and his fame the one thing for you? Now if it's not, it can be. You say, how can can that be the main thing for me? It really only comes whenever we recognize that Jesus is our only source of hope. If we see him as a good addition that makes our lives a little bit better, then we will not find him as our greatest treasure. It's only whenever we recognize that we without him are separated from a holy God for all of eternity because of our, our desire to be our own kings. And whenever we see that Jesus is the only one who stands in our place, who takes the judgment that we rightfully deserves, and offers us his perfect life instead, his perfect righteousness of submission to that holy God and living a life that pleased God. When he offers that to us by his grace and by his grace alone, it's not something that we can earn or something that we deserve. It is something that he gives to us freely by faith in him alone. So this morning you say, How can he be my treasure? Number one is to recognize that we are running from God and he deserves our worship. And the second is by us admitting our need for Jesus to become our only source and only hope for eternal life, and then giving ourselves, surrendering our lives, asking him for forgiveness of our sins and trusting him uh, for his righteousness, surrendering our lives to him as Lord. That is where we can find this hope of eternity and hope of joy. Now this why is the foundational for us. It is to set the direction of our lives. Uh, Albert Moeller says, he says it this way, He says, if we get this right, if we get this foundation right, we will never go wrong as a people. But if we get this wrong, we can never be right. If there is some other aim, some other goal as to why we exist or where we are going apart from making much of Jesus, then we will never be right. But if we make that our aim, we will never be wrong. So last week, we celebrated all that God has done, all the magnificent things that God has accomplished but all those things, even this place is a memorial, a sign of all that God has done, but it's something that is far greater than just this place. In fact, it should serve as a reminder that the mission didn't even start with us. It didn't start with Scotts Hill. It didn't start with us individually. It's a mission that has existed from before the foundation of the world. It's a mission uh, that will find its conclusion only when People from every nation and language and tribe and tongue are gathered around the throne of the living God in worship and adoration of Him for His great and glorious grace that He's given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, because memorials can commemorate the foundation of the mission, there are three derivative truths that come from that. The first is this memorials protect our focus on the mission. Memorials protect our focus on the mission because they commemorate the foundation, they can protect our focus. It's been said from a business perspective that, that vision has a tendency to leak. That is, it's it's hard uh, oftentimes to keep the main thing the main thing in our lives. In business, in church life, in our own personal life, it's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. We begin to chart our own direction, we make our own path, and then we follow it rather than staying on the path that God has intended. I think of it, uh, like baby sea turtles. Now, you guys are like, whoop, didn't see that coming. It threw me f- threw a curveball over there. Sea turtles. Yeah, so sea turtle hatchlings, apparently, uh, whenever they're born, they they navigate towards the brightest light. And in a, on a beach where there's no other lights, the most bright light is the moon reflecting off the ocean. And so the, the sea turtles are born and they go towards the ocean where they should go, right? where they're going to find safety and security and food and all that good stuff that they need to grow. They tend to run away from, uh, slowly as it may be, uh, vegetation and dunes and things like that. Wherever darkness is, they tend to flee from that and go towards light. Now, whenever there's a beach that has a lot of artificial light, you know, you have houses, condominiums, restaurants, and the like, baby sea turtles get distracted. They start to go towards the lights that are the brightest. And if it happens to be an artificial light, that is taking them away from where they should be going, they typically are going to find what? Death, not the ocean. It's not going to be a good situation. The same is true for the people of Israel. The same is true for us. Not long after entertaining, uh, entering the land, there was a man named Achan. Now, Achan was part of this group that came across the Jordan. He saw the mighty works of the Lord. They saw him build the rocks. And yet as they get into the mission, just a few days after they get into the land, Achan to, chose to do something that God said not to do. God said, don't take any of the stuff that is a part of the people what they have. And yet Achan, as he's kind of doing his thing, he saw a couple of shiny objects that caught his attention. And rather than continuing to treasure the Lord above all else, which was the purpose of why they went in and the rocks and the memorials and things like that, he chose uh, to treasure something else above The glory of the lord and he took those things and it resulted in ruin for him now even right now our minds are distracted you might be thinking what am i going to have for lunch you might be thinking what did i have for breakfast you might be thinking what is my kid learning right now in their connect group class you might be thinking how much longer is he going to be preaching you might be thinking um (laughs) you might be thinking if you're a student i wonder how i did on that test on friday I'm gonna get that grade tomorrow and man, I hope I did really good on that test. If you're a parent, you might be thinking, man, I'm still paying for college and I don't know how they're doing on their tests. Not that these things are bad things, but the point in this is that the more we give our attention and our times to these things, our minds, over time, they can begin to distract us from their purpose that God has intended for us. So God gives us memorials to remind us as times of refocus so that we can remember what is it that we are really supposed to be about? What does this this whole thing exist for? Why are we doing what we are doing? Just think about some of the reminders that God has given us, some ways in which he desires for our attention to be directed back to him. He's given us ordinances like the Lord's Supper where we are reminded specifically what Jesus says, remember my death. Remember what that has accomplished and the new covenant that I have given you in my blood. Remember, as we think about baptism, it's a picture of, of somebody dying to their old life, dying to sin, dying to their desire to rule their lives for themselves and being raised symbolically and saying, I'm a new creation in Christ. These are memorials, but not just those, those things that we see on, uh, on a sometimes basis, but the things that we see on a weekly basis. If you look around you, each person in here if they are a follower of Christ is a living monument a living memorial to the work of God's grace in saving sinners for his own glory you see first peter 2 tells us that we are all living stones and as living stones we are we are to communicate something about what god has done in saving us from our uh, dark saving us from darkness and bringing us into his marvelous light we are to declare his excellencies one to another and how gracious he is in saving sinners So friends, if we set as our guiding light, our directing point, the glory of God, and we pursue that, we pursue making much of him in everything that we do, whether it's parenting or business or our neighboring relationships, if we set that as our aim and we pursue that with vigor and intensity, then the things that so easily distract us, the things that grab our attention, the shiny things, will become less and less distracting to us and we will be able to fulfill faithfully the purpose that God has intended for us. So not only does it protect the mission. Memorials provide the necessary fuel for the mission. Memorials provide necessary fuel for the mission. If we recall back to Joshua 3 and 4, what they were being called to do was a monumental task. Move out these nations. Now, show of hands How many many of you have ever helped somebody move out of their house? Okay. How many of you, after helping someone move out of their house, were exhausted? Yeah, I'm in your number. So just imagine not only moving someone, but moving millions of people out of an already possessed land. There is plenty of opportunity for discouragement. Man, I thought we were going to move those guys out quicker. They were a little more stubborn than we thought they were gonna be. This endless amount of people that has to be moved can be an opportunity for people to get discouraged in the midst of the ministry. Maybe as they're going along, not just discouraged because there's so many people left, but there might be this this sense to say, that's gotta be enough. I mean, like we've got our own little niche here. We don't need to move anymore. I mean, they can just kind of keep their own spot. They're not really bothering us that much. So we can see that our... Our, uh, our faithfulness can be discouraged when the task team seems too difficult or when it seems like we've done enough. When it seems too difficult or it seems like, ah, oh, that's enough. We've just done enough stuff. And the state of American Christianity could be reason for us to be, to be considering either one of these ways. I read a recent article that said in the last 10 years that there's been a 13% decline in the number of people who would profess Christianity. And not like, uh, not like if you went to them and asked them some actual doctrine questions, like, who is Jesus? Do you affirm that he rose bodily from the dead? Not just, but things like calling them on the phone and said, hey, if you had to be described as a Christian or a non-Christian, what would you describe yourself as? So just in an informal, anonymous phone call, there have a 13% decline in people who would affirm Christianity. So if you have that, then you realize, well, there are millions of people in America that that don't trust Christ. And then you think about the uh, worldwide amount of people, the billions of people who don't trust Christ. The task does seem endless. And on the other hand, you might say, well, we still have the majority of people in America are Christians. That seems like enough, right? 65% is a pretty good number in terms of people that are believers. So maybe we've done enough. Maybe we've done enough. God's word reminds us as we think about people and as we think about why God created them, that their only source of true joy can only be found in treasuring Christ, then it compels us, it fuels us to say there are still people who don't find him as their treasure. There are still people who are, who are blinded to see that there is some treasure that, is, that could potentially be more valuable than Jesus and we have a responsibility and a privilege to go and say, you're missing it. There is something that is so great and so glorious that it will make everything that you are currently investing your whole life in look like child's play. I love the way that C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, he says that oftentimes we are content with, with eating things or having things like eating mud pies in the sand whenever there is uh, the opportunity of a festival, a carnival, a feast on a great cruise at sea. And we are more content with eating mud pies than getting involved in the mission of the feast. We have an opportunity, friends, to point people to the reality that there is a great hope for them. Remembering the work of God for us in Christ provides the necessary fuel, that necessary reminder that God is working to bring people to himself to help them see his glory. And he is committed as he was in helping the people of Israel and the nations around them see his glory. He is committed to accomplishing this in our day as well. This, friends, this resolute purpose in the heart of God is why we must never quit going, why we must never quit speaking of the truth of the gospel, even if we find ourselves to be the only ones doing so. Not only does it provide focus, not only does it provide fuel, but memorials give us freedom in the mission. Memorials give us freedom in the mission. What did the stones remind Israel of? Reminded them that the fact of the matter was that God was going to do the work. God was going to do the work. Yes, they were going to do the work, but ultimately it was God who was going to accomplish his goal through them. Now, if the underlying motive of the mission is that it's all about God from beginning to end, then we come to find something very important about ourselves, that we are not the center of the universe. You and I, our names, our reputation, our success, isn't the end goal of the universe. And this, while you might say, oh, that sounds really discouraging, is really where we find the most freedom. It's really where we find the most security because we can take the attention off of ourselves and what we want to gain and accomplish in this world and say, All that stuff is supposed to be going to God in the first place. So it it removes from me this slavery to what people think about me, what they're saying about me as it relates to my personhood. And it allows me the opportunity to ask the question, what, what does my life really say about God? What does my life tell people about him? How do my actions draw attention to his beauty, and worth, and away from mine. How is it that we can see this even more clearly? We, we see these things, people's thoughts about us, as the, as the hurdles to overcome, the things that are most scary for us to deal with. The way in which we can find freedom is, is looking back on the cross and seeing that God has overcome our greatest enemies. What people think about us isn't our greatest enemy our greatest enemy was that we stood opposed to God. And because of that, sin and death and judgment awaited us, but God has crushed those things through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so anything else that could be fearful for us, anything else that could evoke fear is nothing in comparison to what God has already beaten on our behalf. And so we can live in freedom and say, you know what, this is my life, but really, if this life is gone, because of what Christ has done, I have life for eternity. If you think about uh, some of these questions that I have here in my mind, when did the disciples become untouchable? When did it seem like anything that you could throw at them was like, okay, sounds good. You think of what, uh, what, what they would say to Paul, and oh, we're going to kill you. And he says, you know what, to die is Christ. So we're going to let you live, to live is gain. We're gonna put you in jail. Give me a hymnal and I'm gonna start singing and everybody that's in the guard is gonna become Christians because I'm going to be faithful. Whatever you do to me, whatever you do to me, I'm going to use it as an opportunity for God to get the glory. I'm gonna use it to point people to the work that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to know with great expectation that God is accomplishing the work so it doesn't ultimately depend on my ability to fix people. It depends on my ability to be faithful to his call. And we have an opportunity as his people to be engaged in that work. The heroes of the faith became unshakable when they were gripped with the greatness of God's glory, when they were gripped with the reality of his work for them in the person and worth of Jesus, and they gave their lives for his name's sake. Now, friends, this morning, we have uh, a great mission ahead of us. We have a great history that God has brought us through God has has worked in us he has built in our lives opportunities to remember his grace but if we use and remember last week just as a time and that was the end the goal was just to celebrate and the celebration doesn't accomplish the work that it seems by God's design to accomplish which is to fuel us to help us to be reminded there is more to be done there are more people who are not seeing Jesus as their great treasure and we have a privilege to go and to make his name known. Now, beginning next week, we're gonna start a, a series that's gonna help us with some of the practical applications of this. Some of the, what do we do on a daily basis with how to, how to do this? How does live it look like in my family, in my neighborhood, in my, in my office place? But as you go this week, I wanna give you three things, three, um, three application points, three things that I want you to begin to do over the course of this next week In application of this morning, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to pray that God would give you personally a vision of his glory. Not like some kind of uh, of out-of-body experience, but just the reality, the overwhelming recognition and affection and love for his glory and person. Second, pray that God would give you a heart for others to see him and be satisfied in him alone. That God would be seen by others. That others' hearts would find in him their truest satisfaction. And then third, begin to pray for opportunities to live on mission where you live, where you work, and where you play. Friends, we do have a great mission, but the great news is that we have a great God. A great God that goes before us and accomplishes his purpose through us, as weak and as feeble as we are, so that... In the ages to come, for all of eternity, all the glory is going to go to him. All the peoples of the earth will see he's the one that accomplished the work. And he got, and we got to be part of that fantastic work.